Hello, and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 2, Defining Harassment, Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson. My name is Paul Rinnan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm of Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. Today, we take it for granted that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits sexual harassment in the workplace. However, this development was never a foregone conclusion. While Title VII may have outlawed sex discrimination in tangible employment benefits, harassment was left completely unaddressed by the statute. It would take over 20 years and a hard-fought legal battle before the claim was finally recognized by the Supreme Court in 1986. Meritor Savings Bank v. Vinson is important for a number of reasons. Not only did the Supreme Court finally decide that sexual harassment was an actionable cause of action in the case, it also asked important questions, which appear in almost every similar lawsuit. What kind of relationships and sexual advances are illegal in the workplace? What evidence of the victim's conduct is proper to bring before the jury? Should employers be held liable for the intentional conduct of their employees when they do not have notice of this conduct? The case asked all of these questions. Before I begin, I want to make a categorical legal disclaimer. The factual issues in this case were never resolved in court proceedings. While the Supreme Court determined the legal framework for harassment claims, it did not adopt anyone's version of events. I encourage you to treat the factual contentions as unproved allegations. The case began in Washington, D.C. in August 1978. John Marshall Meisberg, a former trial attorney for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the agency responsible for enforcing Title VII, had just opened a private solo law practice near the White House on Connecticut Avenue. He was in his early 30s. He received a call one day from an associate who told him she had just met a young African-American woman with an extraordinary case of sexual abuse while working for a bank. The bank's name was Capital City Federal Savings and Loan Association. She asked Meisberg if he would agree to interview the potential client and see if he could help. Michelle Vinson appeared at John Meisberg's office one week later. Meisberg would later explain that the interview was life-changing. He believed Vinson's allegations were nothing less than a case of sexual slavery. According to Vinson, she started working at the bank as a teller trainee on September the 9th, 1974. She was only 19 years old at the time. She got the job from a casual street conversation with Sidney Taylor an African-American manager of the Rhode Island Avenue Northeast branch. He gave her an application, and she was quickly hired based on his direct recommendation. Within 90 days, Vincent was promoted to a full bank teller after completing her probationary period. During this time, Vincent alleged that Sidney Taylor treated her as a fatherly figure. At one point, he even provided her money to help her get an apartment. Nine months later, though, in May 1975, everything changed. Vincent claimed Sidney Taylor took her to a local Chinese restaurant after the branch closed for the day. During the meal, Taylor shifted the conversation to how well he had treated her. Vincent thanked him again, but this time Taylor told her he did not want a simple thank you. Instead, he told her he wanted to go to a motel and have sex. When Michelle Vincent told Sidney Taylor she did not want to have that kind of relationship, Taylor told her she owed him sex because he had helped her get a job. Taylor told Vincent, just like I hired you, I'll fire you. The two then went to the motel. Vincent said she went with him because she feared for her job. The two checked into a room, and Vincent was told to take off her clothes while Taylor showered. They then engaged in sexual relations. Vincent alleged this encounter was not consensual, and things just got worse. During and after banking hours, 
Taylor made frequent demands for sexual favors. Vincent estimated she was forced to have sex 40 to 50 times during the next two years, including in a bank vault, in a storage area in the bank basement, as well as other rooms at the bank. Vincent also alleged Taylor exposed himself to her in the bathroom, displayed pornographic magazines like Hustler, and would fondle her breasts and buttocks, sometimes on a daily basis, next to other employees and customers. At these times, the conduct was hidden, because Taylor attempted to make these maneuvers at an angle out of their sight. And this wasn't all. Taylor's affections were not just limited to Vincent. He also apparently engaged in the sexual harassment of other employees. One of these women was Christina Malone, another teller. Vincent had seen Taylor touch Malone inappropriately and go so far as to chase her around the office. Taylor had also suggestively shaken his crotch at her in the bathroom. Malone later told Vincent that Taylor had pestered her for sex and had physically slapped her once. Another woman, Mary Laverity, also claimed Taylor had fondled her and tried to look down her dress. She believed that she was fired for failing to sleep with him. Michelle Vincent claimed her own abuse continued until 1977, when she began dating a new boyfriend at the bank. However, Sidney Taylor's actions continued to impact her working conditions, and she had to take extended sick leave. After hearing all of this, Meisberg was absolutely astonished. I mean, who wouldn't be? This sounds like a nightmare. Meisberg told her that if she could get affidavits from the other two women, he would assist her in filing a claim. Vincent agreed and quickly returned with the two affidavits in hand. The next month, on September the 22nd, 1978, Meisberg filed Vincent's lawsuit in federal court alleging violations of sexual harassment under Title VII, as well as other causes of action. One month later, Vincent informed the bank by letter that, quote, due to the level of harassment and unprofessional atmosphere that exists at your Northeast office, I am forced to submit this letter of constructive resignation to take effect immediately, unquote. She never returned to the bank. Now, Vincent's harassment lawsuit was stepping out on a limb, legally speaking. There were a number of reasons for this. First, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act did not expressly prohibit harassment. Instead, the statute banned discrimination with respect to the compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of protected characteristics like race or sex. It said nothing about harassment per se. Second, the legislative history of the Civil Rights Act was not very helpful. No one really has a clear understanding how or why the term sex got into the statute. Congressman Howard W. Smith of Virginia, a conservative Democrat and a rabid opponent of civil rights, had added the term sex to the bill at the last minute on February the 8th, 1964, two days before the bill moved from the House to the Senate. Depending on who you ask, Congressman Smith did this as a bad joke, a political ploy to tank the bill, or as an effort to satisfy the National Women's Party and protect white women from being pushed out of the workplace. In any case, Smith was well known for using similar procedural maneuvers to delay and hamper legislation. After Smith proposed the sex amendment, pandemonium erupted at the legislature. Smith got into a fierce argument with his Democratic colleagues who were furious he was attempting to overload the bill. However, Smith may have outsmarted himself. While various factions of the Democrats were yelling over each other, a determined band of five congresswomen rallied together to keep the amendment and pushed it through with a final vote of 168 to 133. The history of Title VII's sex amendment is fascinating and deserves its own podcast. But long story short, someone looking at that history is going to have a hard time showing that sexual harassment was meant to be protected by the bill, 
it's just not very clear what Congress was intending with that amendment. A third reason Vincent's claim was on shaky ground is because the term sexual harassment had not even been invented yet. Although the behavior we now understand to be sexual harassment is centuries old, the term sexual harassment was not actually coined until the 1970s. Specifically, one place it may have arisen is out of the Working Women United group at Cornell in 1975. The group had rallied around the case of Carmita Wood, a 44-year-old administrative assistant who had become sick and walked off the job after being sexually harassed by a Cornell physicist. The Cornell activists organized a sexual harassment speak-out, and the term quickly spread like wildfire across the country. What this means is that Michelle Vincent actually began working at the Capital City Bank before the term sexual harassment had even been defined. Due to the emerging consciousness of the term, courts initially struggled to find Title VII barred sexual harassment. Just look at the first federal case to examine the issue, Barnes v. Train. The court rejected a sex discrimination claim based on harassing acts. Why? Well, because the court found a woman had only refused a sexual tryst, which was unrelated to her sex. Although this decision was ultimately reversed in 1977, it shows the legal area was very gray and in flux. Regardless of these issues, Vincent pushed forward. Sidney Taylor was deposed in October 1978, and he had his own story to tell about what happened. Meisberg recalls that he was tall and dapper. He was dressed like someone out of a Broadway play with a seersucker suit and white shoes. Taylor denied everything, including even having sex with Vincent, touching her inappropriately, or dining with her alone. Throughout the case, Taylor would maintain his complete innocence. In the words of Robert Troll, the bank's lead corporate attorney, Taylor was a complete Eagle Scout. He was a success story in the black community. He had risen from a janitor at the bank to a manager of a branch office. He was a deacon at his church and had seven children. Taylor agreed Michelle Vinson was a good bank teller employee and had received numerous raises and promotions based on her abilities. In fact, he had promoted her to act as his assistant branch manager. However, he believed Vincent was attacking him from personal animus for a number of reasons. He had rejected her own sexual provocations. He had been forced to send her home on occasions for dressing too provocatively and creating a lurid atmosphere at the bank. There were also personnel disputes. When Taylor instructed Vincent to train a bank employee, Dorothea McCallum, to act as the new head teller, Vincent wanted to train another individual instead. Vincent also began taking excessive leave, leave which Taylor warned her about in June and September of 1978. The case would have to go to trial. Due to a backlog in the D.C. District Courts at the time, Vincent's trial for her case was set far in advance. However, she needed to get a new attorney beforehand. In June 1979, Vincent's attorney, John Meisberg, accepted a new job as a senior trial attorney with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in Miami, Florida and had to pull out. Meisberg informed Vincent he would need to turn her case over to another young attorney, Patricia Berry. Berry had ties to the National Organization for Women and had experience representing federal employees in employment disputes. Although she had never handled a harassment claim before, she thought the serious allegations were a, quote, slam dunk. Man, oh man, would these words come back to haunt her, because this case was going to end up in serious overtime. Anyway, Pat Berry quickly developed her own strategy. Like Meisberg, she recognized there was strength in numbers. Therefore, she planned to introduce testimony from Christine Malone and Mary Laverity regarding the harassing working environment at the bank. Additionally, 
she planned to bring in another part-time employee, Wanda Brown, to state Taylor had made improper comments about her hips and had viewed pornography in the office. It seemed like just enough to tip the scales toward Vincent and to cut away at Sidney Taylor's credibility. The trial began on January 22, 1980, and lasted 11 days. The case was assigned to Judge John Garrett Penn, and no jury was involved. At this time, jury trials were generally not allowed in Title VII cases. A right to a jury would not be created until the Civil Rights Act was amended in 1991. Instead, Judge Penn would decide both matters of fact and law. He was a well-respected African-American judge, but had a habit of sitting on cases for long periods of time. He had entered law school the same year that Brown v. Board of Education was decided, and was inspired by the civil rights movement. He was ultimately appointed to the federal bench by Jimmy Carter. Patricia Berry's trial strategy quickly unraveled. While Vincent provided testimony to support her own contentions, Robert Troll, the bank's attorney, objected that any evidence of Taylor's conduct toward other women was irrelevant to any issue in the case, and Judge Penn agreed. He did not want to have a trial within a trial, and he said flat out that what Taylor did to the witnesses had nothing to do with Vincent. Although some testimony was later allowed in on rebuttal, it was very limited. Judge Penn also refused to allow testimony Taylor was violent with Malone, because violence was irrelevant to discrimination. In the end, the case became a largely he-said-she-said affair. During the bank's turn to present direct evidence, Sidney Taylor once again denied everything. He brought up the issue he had with Vincent's dress and her refusal to train Dorothea McCallum as a head teller. The bank then brought out Miss McCallum to testify she had never had any problems with Sidney Taylor. She also brought up some rather strange allegations that Vincent bragged about possessing voodoo powers and had told other bank employees about fantasies of sex and violence, including one fantasy involving her deceased grandfather. Another bank employee, Yvette Peterson, was brought out next. She claimed she saw Vincent flirt with Taylor and had a knack for talking of her sexual life quite a bit and what she liked to do in bed with men. Vincent later disputed all of this testimony, but no doubt it was all very damaging. Vincent's wardrobe also became a substantial subject of the case. McCallum said Vincent would come in each day with a third to half of her breast showing. She would wear short skirts and short dresses, and sometimes deign to wear dresses with slits. Peterson said Vincent's pants were tight, even for 1970s standards. That Judge Penn let all this evidence in is somewhat perplexing, especially when it did not really relate to Vincent's relationship with Taylor. Vincent's attorney, Patricia Berry, tried to keep it out, but her objections were overruled. The parties had to wait a month before Judge Penn issued his order. It turned out as expected. Although he did not decide the factual issue regarding whether intimate relations had occurred, he noted, quote, If Vincent and Taylor did engage in an intimate or sexual relationship, that relationship was a voluntary one by plaintiff, having nothing to do with her continued employment at Capitol or her advancement or promotions, unquote. On the other hand, Judge Penn agreed that sexual harassment was covered by the law, he noted that sexual harassment of female employees in which they are asked or required to submit to sexual demands as a condition to obtain employment or to maintain employment or to obtain promotions falls within the protections of Title VII. However, he said plaintiff did not face sexual harassment based on this definition. On top of all this, Judge Penn believed Vincent's case failed because she did not tell the bank Taylor was actually harassing her. The bank could not be liable for something it knew nothing about. The bank had a grievance procedure. Why didn't Vincent use it? The bank could not be held strictly liable without notice of some violation. 
Vincent's case was in shambles. Patricia Berry immediately filed for permission to appeal on March 18, 1980. Due to the fact Vincent was running out of funds, Berry requested the court excuse certain costs for the appeal, including the cost of printing the trial court transcript. Based on some estimates, the transcript could cost $15,000 adjusted for inflation today. Obviously, as a losing party with dwindling prospects for recovery, you would not want to invest such a substantial sum. Judge Penn denied this request, stating that providing a transcript at public expense was unjustified in a case which did not present a substantial legal issue. Vincent then attempted to appeal this decision, but she was ultimately required to request the right to file an appeal without a transcript. This whole issue would turn out to be a major problem. The failure to provide a complete transcript would lead to disputes about what happened in the trial for the rest of the case. Judge Penn's comment, the case did not present a substantial legal issue, would later cause laughter at the Supreme Court. There was a fatal flaw in Judge Penn's opinion, and it arose from his definition of harassment. Now, Judge Penn really can't be blamed for this. He was not a time traveler, but in April 1980, two months after the trial ended, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission adopted new guidelines for harassment claims. The EEOC found there was not just one definition for harassment, there were actually two. What's that? Two definitions? Come again? The first definition was called quid pro quo harassment. In Latin, quid pro quo means this for that. Under this definition, sexual harassment amounts to sexual bribery. If you do X, then you will get an employment benefit like a promotion or a raise. If you fail to do X, then you will be punished by adverse actions like a demotion or pay reduction. The second definition is called a hostile work environment claim. Under this theory, sexual harassment occurs when the conduct has the purpose or effect of unreasonably interfering with an individual's work performance or creating an intimidating, hostile, or offensive working environment. A person does not need to lose or gain a tangible employment benefit. So got that? Two definitions, quid pro quo and hostile work environment. Very important. In adopting these definitions, the EEOC relied heavily on a book by Catherine McKinnon, a feminist legal scholar who had received her Juris Doctorate from Yale in 1977. Her landmark book, Sexual Harassment of Working Women, caused a sea change in how people approached and understood the problem of sexual harassment. Vincent and her attorney, Pat Berry, would ultimately convince McKinnon to prepare their brief to the Supreme Court. The EEOC's decision to adopt McKinnon's idea in the middle of Vincent's case was the first of many lucky breaks. Although quid pro quo and hostile work environment claims are distinct, they may also blur together. The essential problem for Judge Penn was that his opinion was ambiguous. He seemed to only discuss Vincent's harassment claim from the standpoint of quid pro quo sexual harassment. However, it was not really disputed that Vincent gained her raises and promotions on the merits, what Vincent was alleging looked more like a hostile work environment claim, and Judge Penn had not considered that claim or its definition at all. Vincent's lucky streak continued in 1981. In the case Bundy v. Jackson, the D.C. Court of Appeals, the very court she planned to appeal to, issued a decision recognizing that prolonged harassment in and of itself was discrimination in the terms, conditions, and privileges of employment. The court relied on the new EEOC guidelines, McKinnon's work, and an emerging set of other cases which had found hostile work environment cases actionable for religious, race, and national origin harassment. Then, in 1982, 
a randomly selected three-judge panel heard Vincent's appeal. Vincent's appeal panel was a dream team for her. One of the judges, Spotswood W. Robinson III, was a civil rights icon who had argued one of the four consolidated cases which had become Brown versus Board of Education. He had also been involved in a number of high-profile sexual harassment cases and had previously written an opinion upholding quid pro quo harassment as actionable. The second judge was J. Skelly Wright, a jurist from Louisiana. He was another judge well-known for his civil rights work. He had written so many desegregation orders in Louisiana, he was known by segregationists as Judas Wright. He had previously written the favorable Bundy decision a year before and clearly accepted that hostile work environment claims were actionable. At the hearing, the bank's attorney, Robert Troll, was pummeled with questions about why Judge Penn had not considered the hostile work environment theory, but had only focused on quid pro quo harassment. The judges thought Judge Penn forgot to discuss half the claim. The argument seemed to be going well for Vincent, and she had every reason to expect that a decision would come soon. However, the appeals court sat on her case, and sat some more throughout the rest of the year. In 1983, no decision came either. Shockingly, no decision would issue from the D.C. Court of Appeals until January 25, 1985, three years after oral arguments. It is unclear why the decision took so long. Judge Robinson was assigned the opinion to author, and it was rumored he had a tremendous backlog of cases to work through. He also was diagnosed with colon cancer and may have been suffering health issues. Robert Troll suspected the panel was sitting on the opinion until more favorable case law issued from the other courts. Patricia Berry began to suspect the court did not like her client's case after all, and was planning to affirm the lower court. Her finances were in shambles, and she was nearly broke due to investing so much unpaid time and money into the case. Vincent had also had money trouble. She was unable to find another job in the banking industry, and had begun taking shifts at a plant store and selling newspapers and magazines to make ends meet. She eventually had to move back in with her parents. The case was becoming both women's Vietnam. Although the opinion took forever to finally come out, when it did, Vincent received a total victory. Relying on the 1980 EEOC guidance and the 1981 Bundy v. Jackson opinion, the D.C. Circuit found that Title VII included both a quid pro quo and hostile work environment claim. Judge Penn had only considered the quid pro quo claim. He did not undertake any determination about whether Vincent had been subjected to a hostile work environment claim. Therefore, the case needed to be sent back to the district court to flesh out the hostile work environment claim. The court also took issue with Judge Penn's determination that because the sexual relationship had been a voluntary one, no sexual harassment could have occurred. This would create a terrible policy. If voluntary capitulation to sexual harassment was dispositive, then women would face a cruel quadrilemma. The victim would have to choose from a set of four unfavorable scenarios. Accept the harassment without protest. Oppose the harassment and face repercussions. Resign employment. Or agree to participate in the requested conduct and waive her claims. The court was simply not going to put women in that position. Additionally, it felt it would be unfair for employers to benefit from a waiver defense after creating a coercive environment. Thus, Judge Penn's inquiry into whether Vincent's actions were voluntary or not was improper. Instead, the court should have focused on whether the bank made Vincent's toleration of sexual harassment a condition of her employment, not whether she succumbed to intolerable conditions. The appeals court also reached two evidentiary decisions. 
First, although Judge Penn did not elaborate on the basis for his voluntariness finding, he may have considered the voluminous testimony regarding Vincent's dress and personal fantasies. As the court noted, a woman does not waive her Title VII rights by her sartorial or whimsical proclivities. Voluntariness was irrelevant, and this evidence should not have been considered. Judge Penn also erred by failing to allow Vincent to question other witnesses about improper sexual advances Sidney Taylor had made toward them. Since the direct issue in a harassment case was whether the employer had created a hostile work environment in the workplace, this evidence was directly relevant and should have been considered. Finally, the court turned to the question of whether notice to the employer was required in harassment cases. Vincent had not made an attempt to go over Sidney Taylor's head to complain to his managers. The bank claimed it had absolutely no idea any harassment was going on at the branch. Should Vincent have been required to report Taylor's misconduct before the bank faced liability? The D.C. Court of Appeals said no. An employer was strictly liable for a hostile work environment created by a supervisor's sexual advances. This liability remained present even if the employer did not know about the harassment or could not have reasonably known about it. Liability also remained even if Sidney tried to hide it from his bosses. In effect, the court said Sidney Taylor acted for the bank and his harassment was the bank's harassment. End of story. Of all the decisions that were issued, this one probably caused the biggest concern to the business community. A regime of strict liability is unmerciful and unbending. No matter how many proactive policies, trainings, and efforts you make to stop harassment, no matter how reasonable you are as an employer, if one of your supervisory agents slips through the cracks and harasses someone, you will face liability. Period. This was a huge deal which galvanized the business community. Michelle Vincent and Patricia Berry thought the opinion was incredible. Their defeat at the district court level had left their case in fiery disarray, but now, like a phoenix, it was resurrected stronger than before. Much of the evidence which had been unfavorable would be kept out, and Barry's original trial strategy could proceed according to plan, with multiple witnesses discussing Taylor's behavior. Robert Troll and the bank were in total shock. They wanted to appeal to the Supreme Court. Getting to the Supreme Court, though, was not an easy task. You needed compelling legal issues with a legitimate split of opinion among circuits. At the time, less than 5% of appeals would be granted a hearing before the Supreme Court. Troll decided to seek to have the case reheard by the D.C. Circuit first. However, rather than appeal to their three-judge panel again, which, let's be honest, was a lost cause at this point, he made an appeal for en banc review and requested a hearing before all of the court's judges. This was a Hail Mary pass. Appeals courts just don't do that many en banc reviews. The D.C. Circuit only granted six to ten cases en banc per year. This case would not make the cut and the request for en banc review was ultimately denied 7-3. to three. But Troll was very clever, and had another goal in mind. Winning en banc review would have been nice, but it wasn't really necessary. He wanted some other D.C. Circuit judges to weigh in to show the Supreme Court there really was a substantial conflict in opinion on the court, and his plan worked like a charm. In the order denying en banc review, three judges appointed by President Reagan stepped forward. Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork, and Kenneth Starr. Antonin Scalia needs no introduction. He was a well-known jurist known for his conservative and originalist legal philosophy and would be confirmed to the Supreme Court the next year. He would remain on the bench until 2016. Judge Bork was also well-known. He had served as Solicitor General in the U.S. Department of Justice from 1973 to 1977. 
He was responsible for firing Watergate special prosecutor Archibald Cox under orders from Richard Nixon in October 1973 when Cox had requested Nixon turn over recorded tapes from the Oval Office. Bork would go on to be nominated to the Supreme Court in 1987, but would ultimately have his nomination undone by pressure in part from civil rights and women's groups. Kenneth Starr would serve as Solicitor General under George Bush Sr., and would then become the independent counsel responsible for investigating President Clinton's Monica Lewinsky affair and other sexual harassment allegations. Judge Bork wrote the dissent for the denial of en banc review for the three judges. He believed the appeals court got at least three issues wrong. First, he said voluntariness should absolutely be a consideration in a sexual harassment claim. By taking voluntariness away as a consideration, the supervisor and employer were left without any defenses, Even truly voluntary sexual encounters could be characterized as harassment. Second, Judge Bork disagreed with the decision that evidence of Vincent's revealing clothing and sexual fantasies should be completely excluded from the case. While the evidence was hardly determinative, he believed it was relevant to the question of whether any sexual advances by Vincent's supervisor were solicited or voluntarily engaged in. He also believed there was an awkwardness in classifying sexual advances as discrimination. Judge Bork also thought imposing strict liability was improper. Under this scheme, the employer is, quote, virtually converted into an insurer that all relationships between supervisors and employees are entirely asexual, unquote. The employer, who has no way of preventing sexual relationships from forming, was left defenseless and would be required to pay if the conduct turned out to be harassment. The Bork-Scalia-Starr dissent showed the law regarding sexual harassment had not been established in the federal courts and needed further review by the Supreme Court. It also breathed fresh life into the bank's defenses. Robert Troll and the bank appealed to the Supreme Court on June 21, 1985. Capital City Bank was undergoing a number of mergers at the time and was ultimately absorbed by the Philadelphia-based Meritor Savings Bank. Thus, Meritor's name, not Capital's, would end up on the title of the Supreme Court case. Unsurprisingly, the Supreme Court decided to hear the appeal nearly unanimously on October 7, 1985. The only holdout was Justice Thurgood Marshall, who wanted to allow the lower ruling to stand without further review. The case raised three important issues. One, whether sexual harassment was actionable. Two, what evidence was allowed. And three, what notice was required to the employer. As oral arguments approached, Pat Berry was pressured to let someone else argue the case. She turned down a request from Lawrence Tribe, a renowned constitutional law scholar, to take over. But as previously said, she did enlist Catherine McKinnon to help her write the brief for the case. Three weeks before arguments began, a number of prominent legal figures, including Karen Klaus, the former solicitor of the Department of Labor, held a moot court for Berry to practice her arguments. Berry thought the moot court was to be a brainstorming session and came totally unprepared, McKinnon, Klaus, and the others jumped all over her for failing to know the answers to certain questions, and there were calls for her to turn over the case. Pat Berry, though, flatly refused, believing she understood the case well enough and had been handling it for years. Oral arguments were held on March 25, 1986. Robert Troll brought his children with him to view the arguments. Pat Berry's mother attended, and Vincent's first attorney, John Meisberg, also came back to show his support. The crowds gathered were enormous and filled the gallery at the Supreme Court. Troll and the bank adopted the Scalia-Bork-Star defense that employers shouldn't be unwittingly liable for the sexual harassment of their employees. Sondra Day O'Connor asked 
whether the district court had even considered the hostile work environment theory. Troll conceded it had not, because the theory had not been applied yet in the courts. This admission would prove completely fatal in the end. During Pat Berry's argument, she argued a new trial was necessary because the court had not used the right definition for harassment. However, when asked if voluntariness should be a defense to a suit like this, Berry disagreed and stated the standard should instead be whether the conduct was unwelcome or not. Voluntariness was a bad standard because a person might acquiesce to sexual demands under duress. Justice Rehnquist found this answer troubling, since she was seeking to overturn the evidentiary rulings regarding Vincent's clothing. Barry answered that how Vincent was dressed was irrelevant to whether she welcomed sexual overtures, but she was forced to spend a substantial amount of time arguing this point. The judge's questioning did not offer a clear indication regarding who was likely to win the appeal. On March 25, 1986, however, the court delivered a unanimous opinion, finding hostile work environment claims were actionable. Justice William Rehnquist delivered the opinion of the court. He was one of its most conservative jurists and had been nominated to the Supreme Court in 1972 by Richard Nixon after working as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel. Justice Rehnquist explained in the opinion that, quote, without question, when a supervisor sexually harasses a subordinate because of the subordinate's sex, that supervisor discriminates on the basis of sex, unquote. He went on to note that the language of Title VII is not limited to just economic or tangible employment discrimination. It also includes harassment, which causes psychological harm. Analogizing to racial harassment cases, he noted that, quote, a requirement that a man or woman run a gauntlet of sexual abuse in return for the privilege of being allowed to work and make a living can be as demeaning and disconcerting as the harshest racial epithets, unquote. Michelle Vincent's allegations showed not only severe and pervasive harassment, it also potentially revealed criminal conduct which tainted the very fabric of the workplace. Because the district court had failed to consider any aspect of Vincent's hostile work environment claim, the case needed to be sent back for reconsideration. Next, the Supreme Court rejected the district court's conclusion that no actionable harassment occurred because any sexual acts had been voluntary. The fact that sex-related conduct was voluntary, in the sense that Vincent was not forced to participate against her will, was not a defense and irrelevant. Instead, the district court should have asked if the alleged sexual advances were unwelcome. Like the D.C. Appeals Court, the Supreme Court was not going to adopt a defense which would place women in the dilemma of having to make a choice between quitting their work or succumbing to improper sexual requests and losing their rights under Title VII. Pat Berry and Michelle Vinson loved the opinion, and were pleasantly surprised it had been written by Justice Rehnquist. A unanimous opinion with two concurrences is about as good as you can get at the Supreme Court level. There were some slight wrinkles, however. Although Vincent had attempted to argue her dress and personal fantasies had no place at all at the trial, the court disagreed. While the district court had been wrong to admit them to show voluntariness, sexually provocative dress and speech was obviously relevant to whether conduct was unwelcome. The court noted there was no per se rule regarding such evidence and left it to the district courts to determine when to admit such conduct as relevant. Thus, a woman's demeanor and conduct in the workplace remains relevant to harassment claims to this day. The court also refused to hold that the bank was strictly liable for Sidney Taylor's misconduct because he was a supervisor. Because it found the factual record was sparse and no transcript was available, 
it declined to issue any definitive rulings on employer liability for a supervisor's conduct. It kicked the issue down the road. The court did nebulously note, however, that courts should look to agency principles, whatever that means. Thus, the extremely important question on employer liability, the question everyone wanted answered, would have to wait for another day and another case. Michelle Vincent's case was remanded to the district court on October the 14th, 1986. The financial strain of the case proved too much for Pat Berry, and she was forced to withdraw. The Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights took over, and five more years passed before it was set for trial. Robert Troll, who had represented the bank from the beginning of the case, also pulled out. As for Sidney Taylor, he had new legal problems. He was caught red-handed embezzling money from an elderly bank customer. An 83-year-old widow, Emma Dade, visited Meritor Bank one day in July 1986. She needed help removing her brother from a joint account because he had recently entered a nursing home. She wanted the money in the account to go to her church after her death and to be used to feed the hungry and poor. Rather than helping her with this transaction, however, Sidney Taylor used his position as branch manager to convince Miss Dade to form a joint account with a right of survivorship bearing his name. After the widow's money was transferred into the account, Sidney Taylor began withdrawing thousands of dollars until his criminal conduct was discovered and stopped by the bank. Sidney Taylor was ultimately convicted and imprisoned for his crimes against Miss Dade. He appealed to the D.C. Court of Appeals in 1989, but his judgment was affirmed. It's never a good sign for the defense when your key witness is swept up in a crime involving deception, especially a crime involving an old widow. If Taylor's embezzlement charge was let in, his credibility would be completely shot. The defense was also concerned by talk that Congress was considering amending Title VII. The Civil Rights Act of 1991 was about to be passed, and it would allow for compensatory and punitive damages, creating a larger financial risk for the bank. Before a second trial could commence, Vincent and the bank settled for an undisclosed amount of money out of court on August the 22nd, 1991. Since first facing harassment from Sidney Taylor, Michelle Vincent's efforts to resolve her claim had lasted for an incredibly long 16 years. Think about that. 16 years. What kind of changes can happen to a person and the world during that time? What kind of changes can happen to the law did happen to the law? But it was finally over. Vincent went on with her life. It is reported she ultimately used her money to finish nursing school and assist others who had been abused. Without a doubt, Meritor Savings Bank v. Vincent revolutionized discrimination law and changed the public consciousness. What began as an obscure harassment theory proposed by Catherine McKinnon had been adopted by the EEOC and the highest court in the land within a decade. Vincent returned home and was congratulated by people she did not even know in her neighborhood. She had become an instant icon. Harassment claims also began to explode. The EEOC registered less than 10 charges of sexual harassment per year in 1986. After the case, that number skyrocketed to 624. In 1990, there were 2,217 cases. In 1995, 4,626 cases. Last year, in 2018, that number reached 7,609 filed claims. And this doesn't even include the state agencies. Whole corporate industries are now built around preventing sexual harassment. Public figures like Bill Clinton, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump, and many, many others have become the subjects of sexual harassment investigations. Recently, in 2017, the Me Too movement went viral on social media, showing the continued presence of sexual harassment in the workplace. 
The definition of sexual harassment created by the Supreme Court in Michelle Vincent's case has and will continue to define how we think about the social problem of harassment in the workplace. However, the case left open many issues which we still deal with today. The court's decision to define harassment as unwelcome rather than involuntary sexual conduct remains controversial. Those who defend the unwelcomeness test argue it is necessary to sift improper sexual conduct for more benign sexual banter and flirtation in the workplace. However, critics argue this definition assumes a sexualized workplace, and that sexual initiative at work is natural and possibly even desirable unless clearly refused. Why should the law make such an assumption? Critics also take issue with the unwelcomeness test because it shifts the burden of proof from the alleged harasser to the victim. Why should the victim be required to prove the conduct was unwelcome? Wouldn't it be better and more fair if the alleged harasser was required to prove his conduct was welcome or consented to? Other problems are also brought up. The unwelcomeness test assumes that the victim will challenge sexual behavior she does not want and show it is unwelcome. But study after study shows victims have difficulty speaking out about harassment and may put up with behavior to avoid damaging their careers. Why should the law use the victim's failure to challenge the abuse as an element in their case? Furthermore, they wonder, just like Pat Berry did during Michelle Vincent's trial, why a victim's dress, sexual history, fantasies, and language is relevant to another person's harassment. These are all thought-provoking arguments. I am not here to tell you whether we should keep, amend, or discard the definition of sexual harassment established by Michelle Vincent's case. Miss Vincent's lawsuit has defined harassment in our perception of workplace relationships for over 30 years. If we desire to work toward eliminating harassment in the workplace, we should continue to examine it and to learn from it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next time on Employment Law Legends. Thank you.